Hi. Bashwati Bhattacharya, thank you very much for joining us. What a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you Bashwati you are joining this podcast today from Benares is that correct That is correct The ancient city of Kashi as the Hindus would call it and now of course later called Benares and then Varanasi It's what 5000 years old some say 10000 o- It's older than the Ganga It is so older than older. the Ganga Yes Well Bashwati the reason I invited you on this podcast on this grand podcast is of course because of your wonderful lifetime's work as it were in studying ayurveda you are now of course at Cornell University and you've spent really most of your academic career trying to understand connections between the ancient hindu medical philosophy of ayurveda and its connectivity with what we call modern science would that be do you think the correct description of your work uh if you're a westerner yes i think that's correct well we have people from around the world it's, listening it's, to this podcast so just to sort of simplify it for them yeah it's not just a philosophy you know it's an actual medical system it's an entire system that has been practiced continuously for at least 5000 years and is most probably the oldest continuously practiced system of medicine by man uh, on the planet and it um is the option number 1 for many people throughout the world and before you tell us more about ayurveda and your own research in ayurveda tell us a little bit about your own academic journey and the history of your own research and tell us the institutions in which you did this research well hindol you know about me so uh you can jump in um just for, the, for our audience in your own words so i went to princeton high school and decided to go uh start university there and then moved over to university of pennsylvania because there was a, a medical a strong medical biomedical program did my undergraduate completed um that at Penn and uh started with a PhD when I was 19 in pharmacology and neuroscience and worked on that took that over to Columbia University where there was a magnet program of neuroscientists and studied the brain and how the brain develops and how the mind develops and became really fascinated with the chemicals of the brain the pharmacology as it were of the brain during that time i met a columbia professor and ended up uh going with him for a summer to tibet where i started learning about these very foreign medicines that were so different from the pharmaceutical medicines that i had been growing up with in New Jersey and you know the northeast of the United States and i just wondered why would those people opt to use these kind of foreign medicines these little round magic pills why would they do that and when i came back to new york after my time i was there for about 6 months in tibet um i realized that actually they were using those medicines because there's something about them that works and when i asked the people in modern medicine they were so derogatory so um unceremoniously uh, arrogant about and unwilling to think about the fact that any other kind of medicine could work so of course curious why would scientists whose job is to be curious about phenomena out in the world 
Why would they not be curious to know about medicines that seem to be giving clinical effectiveness that is far and above the things that I see in Western uh, hospitals and clinics? So from there, because of my work with Tibet, I was invited to do a Master's of Public Health at Harvard, where I learned about setting up medical systems. And from there, I met the late Jonathan Mann and Dr. Ian Aitken, both of whom were instrumental in convincing me that I should go to medical school. So despite uh, my background in pharmacology and neuroscience and all, they wanted me to have an actual medical degree. So at the age of 30, I entered medical school, went to uh, Rush University of Chicago, and completed there and then went off to do an internship and residency in family medicine and then in uh, preventive medicine got picked up by cornell medical college where i've been since 2003 and um in in some time before that i think in 2000 2001 i was asked to do a film for national geographic which then got purchased by discovery channel called healer's journey into ayurveda and being indian people just assumed that i knew ayurveda which at the time i didn't really know so i started studying and uh, i was asked to do this film and i went to kerala and i saw things clinically that i had learned were impossible in modern medicine things like cerebral palsy children who are kind of wrapped up in a in a ball and can't move have no muscle tone um learning to stand learning to move their legs and their arms and having strength in their muscles things that i had just never seen people recovering 100% from strokes and walking again people um getting up after you know coronary uh bypass um uh, where they are told that they'd never walk again and actually walking people with rheumatoid arthritis having their fingers unmangled uh, people with diabetes reversing their condition people with all kinds of diseases and it fascinated me that there's something on this side of the world in India which those people don't feel like they need to profess or evangelize to the rest of the world but are nonetheless practicing so for about 10 years i spent time in india learning ayurveda and then in america practicing modern medicine which was slowly becoming more integrative and then i received a fulbright and decided to go to india to study the concept of immunity which is called ojas and uh, while i was there the dean of um, banaras hindu university invited me dr cb cha he invited me to do a phd in ayurveda which i just completed this last year and in it i studied two things one was um, herbal formulations for diabetes using plants uh, which was actually more effective than metformin which is one of the standard modern medical drugs and second is i studied the herbs minerals and metals that are in the body and how we can take metals and make them into medicines it's called basmas or rasa shastra and so i studied that for 5 years and um relearned my sanskrit and learned how to drive on the streets of banaras and learned hindi and uh you know learned what it is to be an indian that's an incredible so. story that's really an incredible story vash <laughs> And I am I am And it most, took me 6 minutes to tell it. Oh my gosh. And I'm most intrigued and I'm fascinated by the journey that you describe, especially in a sense your journey from listening to deep-seated skepticism 
and then starting to question the value of ancient knowledge because it does seem to me that around the world today people are once again beginning to realize what we have lost and are moving towards trying to regain what we have lost and i wonder whether you can talk to me a little bit about what this journey in becoming an indian as you call it has really meant for you well you know um being a bengali being confused about what happened at partition because of the my parents experience through it being brought up both in uh, my father went to cambridge so having a very british kind of ulala background and growing up in the ivy league as well as being very much proud of being a calcutta and a bengali an indian um i am when people ask me where did you grow up i first say i haven't grown up yet and then i say <laughs> i say i spent my early childhood i think we could all say um, that you know i feel well yeah. most people don't say it though you know, although we should grow up in a sense growing up is highly overrated i agree i agree i totally agree but being um both in india we have a house in calcutta since you know since before i was born and having a house in america or in europe I grew up in both and people say no no where did you grow up and I say I grew up in both I have full facility with uh English and I have full facility with Bengali and I just never thought of myself as not Indian and I never thought of myself as not American and I think that gave me an insight um because my parents were smart enough to keep us bicontinental so your question about the journey of how it's happened is about trying to figure out what my place is in the world and you know the place that i'm most comfortable is actually in the airport <laughs> it's the most comfortable place for me because when i'm in new york people think i'm very indian and if i don't wear a sari after a few days i start getting antsy maybe i'll just put one on at home but i like to wear saris um at the same time when i'm here in india and i'm wearing saris for too long i like to put on a pair of jeans i like to wear my hair down i like to wear it up and so the need to do both the need to speak in you know like if you're in delhi i think it's very normal to speak three or four languages in one conversation or in kolkata most people speak hindi bangla and english in in the same sentence even and for people like you and me who are both bengali we met in delhi you know we're speaking english right now it's very common to have that sense of everything mixing together but then we also have to be keenly aware that like when you're in oxford there are people that don't understand hindi and bengali so you have to speak only in english but this is an interesting journey isn't it uh, bashwati because i wonder if this occurs to you and uh, of course we have very similar backgrounds um, i'm bengali too and um, i i feel many but i'm not as good looking as you are <laughs> we have very different backgrounds no, you you're... get away with a lot of shit because of your charisma no, no you're you're too kind um no i i what i mean is that you know this 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 directionless modernity that the world went through for about 30 40 years in a sense with neoliberalism uh all of that has been or is being rethought isn't it reimagined yes. and i wonder if you might want to talk to us a little bit about something that you mentioned a few minutes ago about why ayurveda was not thought of as scientific what was the problem why did people not want to accept that 
this too could be science where does this this misconception this arrogance if i may call it that come from and why is it so detrimental if you could explain to us for the real development of knowledge and well-being yeah so this is this is a conversation uh that requires us to continue speaking until people start changing the narrative because i think many people know uh, what i'm about to say but they don't uh they don't put it into the context of the rest of their knowledge so until about 300 years ago india's gdp was about a third of the entire world and um just as everyone knows today what a suit looks like from europe or america back then the world knew spices they knew silk they knew cotton they knew mahogany they knew things about sanskrit and they knew that it came from india so about 2000 years ago there was a guy a greek fellow named ctesias who sat in the persian court of i think it was xerxes the 2nd he took the knowledge of shushrut which came obviously from benares um via persia back to greece to kos and likely handed it to hippocrates which who was a couple of decades his junior that book um you can get it it's called on indica but the the book of shushrut was probably in the library of alexandria and the worlds of persia and arabia and Egypt knew the medical literature of the Vedas and they knew it because it worked because it had been around for 5000 years and had traveled on every ship that came out of India because that's how people you know treated their their illnesses or um uh woes when they were at sea and um all of that was mainstream information and was captured like that in the text there's a lot of cross references to things that we do in our food our clothing our directionality in you know just laying your head east you probably heard your mom say never lie down with your head facing north lay east or south there are a lot of things that's from vastu by the way a lot of um recommendations of how to take water how to eat food that came from ayurveda and were just cultural the british then came along and decided that the best way to disassemble this prachin gyan which means ancient knowledge um from india was you know as part of their agenda for conquering india and they did it quite well so in the last since macaulay 1835 let's say last uh, let's call it almost 200 years they really took everything that was this beautiful integrated knowledge and made it illegal or subverted it or um decimated it decimated the people that knew it and so what you got was the medical people that knew ayurveda that were treating with it no longer could the parts of it that were part of culture like food or clothing just became part of clothing and got detached from the reasons behind it and uh in the meantime from the middle 1800s after homeopathy started there was a movement of these chemical physical people to try to find a medical system to um be superior to those things that were nature based and that was called modern medicine and so modern medicine has made a huge stride forward economically as well as politically and has now it dominates the world's um agenda for health and medicine so even the WHO which 
you know, is funded by various groups that are invested in modern medicine. They even say, uh, well, you know, we we need to move the tuberculosis or the malaria or the HIV agenda forward. But by the way, 60% of the world still uses their own traditional ancient medicines. And they say it, and there's a little office in the WHO called the Traditional Medicine Program that has a few little projects looking at traditional systems but for the most part, biomedicine has dominated. And I think Ayurvedic people, um, the ones that do it, do it. And they don't need to have everyone else know about it. And so Ayurveda is very much accepted by people who know it. But it has become unknown to those people who just didn't get the benefit of learning about it. And I think it's because of this... Um, as you call it, the modernized, you know, agenda of the world, the modern urban Western bend, which says that technology is superior to simplicity of nature. And that is the only good news in all of this is that is, but that does seem to be changing. There seems to be more questioning about this agenda than ever before. And there does seem in your own work, your own work there seems to be finally a recognition of at least a little bit of recognition for systems like Ayurveda uh, in the West. What exactly is changing and why do you think it's changing today? What has changed from the time when you first began to study Ayurveda and were told that oh this is all balderdash? Well, people still say it's all garbage and all, and they say it's not scientific. So I ask them, when you say scientific, like they'll say, well, how scientific is Ayurveda? I mean, is there any evidence for it? And I say, well, by scientific, do you mean valid? Because if you mean valid, then you're talking about practice-based evidence. And if you mean science, there, you know, there are two issues. One is science is a systematic replicable body of evidence. Ayurveda has certainly been replicating for 5,000 years. Otherwise, it wouldn't have continued. It would have, you know, fallen apart. Um, or if they mean science is logical, logical is what? Ayurveda is logical, but it just starts with a larger frame of reference than modern science does. Chemistry, physics, mathematics, they're not all compatible with each other. Modern medicine is not compatible. Nutrition says things that are 180 degrees, you know, in um, opposite from other, you know, one researcher to another. The different sciences aren't seamless, but the sciences within um, ancient India are all seamless. They didn't separate chemistry from physics. It came together. The macrocosm and the microcosm, the forces that run things versus the molecules that run things. Now, if you look at engineering, material science, those people are masters of both chemistry and physics. And they keep saying that the physicists will go further if they learn chemistry and the chemists will go further if they learn physics. And yet the laws of classical chemistry, modern chemistry, as we say, or classical physics, um, they end at this point. There's like this drop off where they're starting to acknowledge. And, you know, Einstein had started to acknowledge that there's a place where the laws start changing. How do we take those frames of reference? Ayurveda found that place and it used a larger frame of reference, which include not only the material world of what we can see with our five senses, but also the frames of microscopy into the subtle, what we call in Sanskrit, sukshma, 
and macroscopic which is like at the planetary level where you had sciences like jyotish so modern science has spent a lot of time making fun of astrology and jyotish as well as making fun of the sukshma which they call spiritual but ayurveda just takes that and says well you guys are just only looking at logarithmic scales between you know let's say a nanoparticle and um the size of the moon or mars now you're not looking beyond the way that we look at it and so at some point you're going to realize that those frames of reference need to go beyond you know to the 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 gravitational forces of planets and the effects they have on earth as well as very 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 small subtle particles um like bosons right that are starting to come up so um i don't know if this is irrelevant no, this is answer no this is absolutely fascinating and in fact i just wanted to interrupt you for a second to just ask you uh, even as you continue with the answer to connect it all because it seems that all of this is connected of course to a larger deeper philosophical understanding in the indic tradition and if i may bring in for instance the philosophy of the vedanta which mm-hmm. really suggests that the universal or the brahman is irretrievably intertwined with really the atman the singular exactly. the person right exactly that the universe you know swami vivekananda of course who mesmerized america in 1893 used to talk about this that essentially our lives is merely a manifestation of the universal consciousness that's that right the universal consciousness is is reflected within each of us as the living force that which keeps us alive and then we die of course then it goes back in a sense that life force and merges back into the universal consciousness and you seem to be talking in very much similar terms isn't it that's right and so when um people that believe in sanatan dharma um talk about how god is within us the christian the Ju- the judo christianic world says oh my god what arrogance to think that god is within you they don't realize that what they think of as hinduism which is this worshiping of monkeys and elephants and a pantheon of gods is not that's that i mean that's one part of it i don't want to uh totally invalidate the people that do have icons but the people that believe in sanatan dharma the the endless cycles um understand that the endless cycles are not just through time but through space as well and they have axiomatic reaches from the very very microcosmic to the very very macrocosmic and that ayurveda and all the other sciences connect them so in ayurveda one of the biggest um criticisms is that oh it's a spiritual religious thing well if you believe that understanding your mind and your deepest most subtle angles of your being is an integral part of fixing the other angles of your being which are let's say your diseases in your organs ayurveda starts with that there's a shloka that says raga di roga and shatatanu shaktan is the first shloka and it says from the emotions that are imbalanced in yourself in your mind spreads throughout your body and creates the first little anchors of disease and if you want to prevent those anchors from taking hold and creating real disease 
in your body, then fix your emotions and fix your relationship with the subtle planes of the universe. We can call that religion, we can call that spirit, faith, whatever the Western concept needs to be. But really what it's saying is Adhyatmika, do the inner journey, get connected with the molecules or the subtle energies, waves, particles of your being. And I think that's how my mom actually brought me up. So whenever I would be very chanchal, very, you know, very uh, unsettled, she would put me in a yoga pose and she would have me just go deep inside into this meditative space. And I would create stillness there and then reach that back out to my body. So Ayurveda talks about that as one of the modalities of getting well again and i believe that that's one of the reasons that there are people that have spontaneous remissions from cancer so there's a statistical fact in modern medicine that four out of every ten thousand people spontaneously remiss from terminal cancer so while the modern medical people say well statistically let's look at the 9997 or 9996 the ayurvedic person or the person like you and me is going to say, wait a second, let's focus on those four people. Because if my mom is one of those four people, I would rather focus on the four and figure out what they did to create that spontaneous remission. And time talk and me, again... Talk to me a little bit about the spontaneous remission. Uh, what exactly do you mean, especially for our audience? Um, what exactly does that mean? And especially since you're referring to that context of cancer what does that really mean for cancer patients when you say spontaneous remission do you mean they are able to in a sense eject the disease from their body well the idea of fighting or ejecting is very imbalancing what they're able to do is rebalance whatever is imbalanced such that the cancer doesn't have an environment in which to stay and then it goes away so there's an immense power of cells to bully or to guide their fellow cells that they live with and to say, hey, you're a cancer cell and you're creating a lot of chaos, quiet down. Think of a classroom in which one person is out of line and how the other students can either get excited with him and became, become completely chaotic or they can quiet him down and he can, you know, kind of cease to be a problem child and so in the same way our bodies have that capacity sometimes we need to put the person down you know it's called apoptosis when you kill a cell and then the other cells around it resorb it and kind of just suck up its content so it doesn't create a mess um, but most of the time the cells are brought out of their cancer state and back to normalcy. And that's happening in your body and my body right now in every moment. Our immune system is doing, doing it. exactly that, exactly. Yeah. I was about to mention the immune system. Yeah. Well, our immune system does that every single day. Every single day. not ill all the time. And that's what is happening in every single person that's listening to this podcast. We are having cancers start up. There's maybe, you know, 50 or 100 or 1,000 cells and the rest of the millions of cells around them just quiet them down and say, hey, 
you're getting out of line you need to come back to vibrating at the you know at, at the hindo level right become a hindo cell again don't be a cancer cell and then it comes back into that vibration and when that's happening time and again that means your immune system and the normal cells are able to do it it's when you can't do it anymore or you're not doing it that cancer grows out of control so what cancer researchers have been doing is looking at ways of fighting battling ejecting you know destroying cancer but instead of doing that if they just focus on rebalancing that energy of calm and peace um we find that people have the ability to spontaneously which means you know in in a moment or a, a flash of time remiss which means to move back toward that space of balance and um there are a lot of books written about spontaneous remission so this is fascinating could you tell us a little bit about the latest research on this and what does it really show and what does it really mean for cancer research Well, um there aren't a lot of people that are studying it in the modern world, although it does get some attention periodically because the agenda is not to cure cancer, you know that. Um there are many speeches given by people that lead up lead cancer institutes that say, "Don't worry, don't worry, there's still, you know, your job is not going to be uh gone next year. Don't worry, don't worry. We're going to make sure that we still keep you employed." In the same time, and I'm not being sarcastic. You can go no, and you I can understand. listen I mean, to, you know, you is, know. And this has happened in other kinds of, I mean, you know, in a, and it occurs to me that a, a bit of this conversation of course is happening and raging in fact in the whole fossil fuel industry, right? I mean, That's right. That's right. Technology is available but used <coughs> because there's an agenda not to mass produce it. Well there was a similar conversation when they were talking about downsizing manual labor in the 90s. I used to work on Wall Street. Huge conversation about downsizing manual labor when computers started coming in and when AI, you know, came in further and people didn't like it. I mean, when fax machines came in, it it destroyed the entire, you know, postal service. When internet and emails came in, it destroyed a lot of work for people. Um and this is this is part of the evolution of um the world. Yeah, exactly. So in the world of cancer, there are people in different medical systems who have been treating cancer and continue to. And I will tell you that up until about 8 years ago, I was really afraid of cancer. I've seen it. I um I know Siddharth Mukherjee that wrote the book about, you know, the yes. um the maladies and yeah, the emperor, emperor exactly yeah. and i uh, was afraid of cancer and then i came on this full bright and i started meeting people all over the country who were working with ojas and i met men who live in the forest in the deep you know jungles of india and i met people who make bhasmas and i met these old men in banaras and all over the country where i was going And they said, "Well, if you have cancer, you just need to change your attitude, stop battling and start balancing." And I got to the point where now I am not afraid of cancer anymore. I just know that if I ever have someone that I love get diagnosed, and I do, I have patients and students that get diagnosed, I guide them where to go in India. And I say, "You have a choice. If you want to live with this and stay in your you know mental paradigm then you can if you choose to though you can go to india here's the number or here's the the person the email address 
And I start a conversation with them about that. And several of my friends um, and patients have come to India and been treated and go back and they are um, now living in what's called remission in modern medicine because in modern medicine they don't want to say that you're cured until you're about five years out. And so I'm no longer afraid of cancer the way I was, the way I was taught to be. I want to end this conversation on, on this beautiful note, but I cannot let you go before asking you one last question, which is if you were to look at the revitalization or the reimagining or the rediscovery of the knowledge of the East, you know, I really believe that in the future, quite like um, you mentioned, you know, there is no fighting technology and there's no fighting technological advancement. But I really believe that while the West will give us many of the technological advancements, as in it could give us a battery that will help us charge our cars in one second or what have you, it is the East that will give us really the technologies for what's happening inside us. And um, and I think your work is so valuable in that process and in that journey. And I wonder where you, to end this conversation, I wonder where you place your research and work as a practicing doctor in Cornell. Um, when you talk to patients, what is it that you're telling those patients uh, to help them understand life in a more holistic way? You know, patients don't come to me for modern medicine. They come to me by word of mouth for the most part because they've heard. Um, and so they're already thinking about healing. They've already looked at my website and gotten a good sense of it. And when they come, they're open to healing. And for many of them, there's a little bit of counseling on the mental and verbal level that needs to happen. But a lot of times it's just the energy. Uh, I do a lot of energy work with patients. They come in, they will bring their medicines. I will touch their medicines. I will transmit energies to it. It sounds very foo-foo, very woo-woo. But that kind of healing work that happens is not about molecules. It's about waves of energy it's about vibrational levels and i think that is um so far removed from what the understanding is for many people who live in the physical chemical world that they're not going to accept it and they're just going to end up you know passing into the ages for the ones that do believe in it they are already starting to use things like magnets or um, some of the latest modern technologies that are focusing more on waves and energy, uh, sound, even the gamma knife, which is a surgical instrument that cuts using um, high power energy and waves. These are all coming forward and my patients come to me because they know that I have an integrated approach to healing. If they're very chemically oriented, I will give them herbs. I will make formulations for them. I'll give them pasmas. Um, I will give them um, modalities that involve chemistry. If they're more interested in energy, I talk to them about food and where food comes from. I talk to them about energy work that they can do themselves, biofeedback. I certainly love giving them yoga postures and breath work and aromatherapy. And I use a variety of medicine modalities that integrate in depending on what the patient is ready for and what the patient um, and the, the illness state requires. So that's how I'm working right now. I don't know how it will um, continue because the future is, you know, in the future. But what I know is that right now I see patients in India, I see patients in America, 
and I have a really amazing group of people who want to be cured and healed. They don't want to hang on to the um, paradigm of medicine that has been dominating in the last 50 years and they vote with their feet. You know, they are willing to come and do the work of what I will most closely align with Ayurveda and uh, heal because that's that's where they're interested. They're not interested in a diagnosis and a cure. They're interested in healing. So maybe I'll just leave it at that. That's really beautiful, uh, Vasvati Bhattacharya, Dr. Vasvati Bhattacharya from Cornell talking to Grin on her wonderful journey into the world of medicine and healing and her use, her lifelong use and research in Ayurveda, the Mm. 5,000 year old, if not more, tradition of medicine uh, in Hindu philosophy in and from India. Uh, this is Grin. Thank you very much, Dr. Bhattacharya, for joining us today. Uh, thank, thank you for you having me. Much. And I'm Hindolsan Gupta. That's all on this podcast. We will return very soon with more wonderful stories and wonderful people trying to make the world better. Thanks very much. Goodbye. <laughs>